Today's scripture reading is found in Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 3 and 11 through 32. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. But when he came to him to feed pigs, and he was longing to be fed, and the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead, and he is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Oh, you may be seated. This morning we're continuing um, this series that we're doing on, on the, the parables of uh, the kingdom. Um, and we're so thankful that we have a, a really talented uh, community of artists as well who have been um, uh, providing some really incredible artwork uh, to go along with these parables. I, mean, you know, I believe you've seen uh, this, this painting here this morning um, from, from Vicki Saylor. Uh, maybe you, you saw this and you kind of already guessed where we were going to be this morning. Um, I don't know, the, uh, the parable of, of the prodigal son, uh, where we'll, we are this morning, uh, it's perhaps one of 
the, the, the most well-known parables of Jesus. Um, maybe uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan beats it on popularity. Uh, I don't know. But in any case, uh, both Prodigal Son and Good Samaritan have even made it into our modern vocabulary. They're that popular. Um, this little story uh, is popular for good reason also. Um, in, a, in a pretty short space, all things considered, Jesus masterfully crafted an inviting, moving, complex narrative. Um, it, it, th- this parable is truly brilliant literature, just objectively speaking. Um, but it's also so much more than that. And I hope we'll see that this morning. Um, now, we all know what prodigal son uh, means, right? It's a child who, who runs off to do their own thing, but returns home when their chosen path doesn't work out and, and, and you know, things don't go like, like, like they thought, right? We all kind of know that. Um, and because of that, because of this uh, father-son reconciliation story, uh, many see it as, as, as heartwarming. It's, it's touching. Um, and so this story, uh, it's, it's actually been imitated in countless works of, of art and literature um, throughout history. I mean, if you think about it, you can probably think of some uh, uh, book or movie that is essentially this parable. But I hope as we listen closely to this story again, the uh, familiarity and maybe even some of the sentimentality, right, some of the, the warm fuzzies uh, that we attach to this parable will wear off a little bit. Um, I'm praying that we would have ears to hear um, the rather shocking point the parable is making, uh, which is this. You probably don't understand the heart of God the Father. That's the point. Uh, so with that, let's take a look at the text. Um, the scene opens with a father and his two sons, and the only thing we know at first is that one of the sons is younger and the other is older. Uh, don't worry, the insights will get a little bit better from here. Uh, older son, younger, younger son. And immediately, for reasons that Jesus frustratingly leaves out, I think, I mean, I really want to know why, the younger son approaches his father and says in verse 12, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Right? Why does he say that? We don't know. Um, we don't know what has, has, has led to it. And uh, the father obliges. He gives his son his inheritance, which was probably about a third uh, of all that he owned. Now, if one of my daughters came to me in 15, 20 years or so, they're still pretty little, um, if one of them came to me and said, hey, dad, <clears throat> I wish you were dead. Uh, my life would be better if we just pretended that it happened and you went ahead and gave me my inheritance, you know, the stuff you spent your entire lifetime working for and saving up uh, for, you know, what, what, do you, what do you say? Because uh, this is essentially what the younger son is, is asking. It's that extreme. So if one of my girls uh, were to ask me that, what I would be thinking <laughs> is, well, I probably shouldn't say it because we're in church. <laughs> so what I would say is, I uh, probably shouldn't say that either. Um, I don't want to get in trouble because my language I don't think would be very good. Um, so let's, let me paraphrase the kind of thing I would say in that instance. I would, I would say something like, dear daughter, you must have lost your mind. <laughs> or else you think I've lost mine. That's not happening. But if you desire to leave this household, be my guest. Uh, there's the front door. I will escort you there if you would like. Uh, and again, there might be some other <laughs> choice language in there too. A little, a little, might be a little more heated, um, and that's actually that that kind of that kind of reaction uh, would 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 be what Jesus's original hearers would have expected to be the reaction. That's how they would have responded. Um, in Jewish tradition, uh, the son was technically uh, allowed to ask this. Like from from a legal perspective, he could ask this, but it, this was considered highly highly insulting. 
The younger son was humiliating his father, and in that culture, that was not to be tolerated. It would have been absolutely absurd to give in to that audacious request, but this father does the unthinkable, at least unthinkable to me and to, and to Jesus' hearers, and he gives his son his inheritance. Initially, like I said a, a second ago, we aren't told what circumstances led to this falling out, but we can see uh, why, the son, why, why the younger son asks what he actually uh, wants and what he plans to do with this um, small fortune. Uh, really, you could just say he desires independence and control, something he obviously feels he can't have while uh, hanging about home. And this leads to um, the first question I want to ask this morning. Actually, I have, I have four questions I want us to think through as, as we um, look at this text. And, and so the first is, how does the younger son exercise independence and control? Well, the text tells us that he went into a far country, uh, some place far away from home where the father couldn't have eyes on him. And he squanders his wealth in reckless living, verse 13 says. He is wasteful and lavish in his spending habits. Um, This is why this is often called the parable of the prodigal son. Prodigal means lavish, over the top, and and it kind of has this idea of, of wastefulness and recklessness. So the younger son thinks that separation from and rebellion against the father will grant him the independence and control he desires. If he can just separate away, if he can go against everything the father has been about, then he will be in control of his life. He'll be able to buy what his father wouldn't allow, engage in the activities his father prohibited, associated with those his father shunned, etc., etc. The irony is, of course, that he's never so far away from the father as he thinks. Whose hard work, whose good gifts are making his whole lifestyle even possible? Right, whose money is really buying the next round of, of drinks? He's never so far away as he really thinks. This desire for independence, control, and, and, and self-sufficiency, um, this is not new to the prodigal son. It actually goes all the way back to Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve in the garden. There they, they decided that they didn't need God and could be their own masters, their own definers of good and evil. But that Prodigal mentality, the desire for control through separation and rebellion, it, it has grown over time and it has, has germinated uniquely in the modern world. Uh, essentially, Western culture is the prodigal son mentality just exploding out into an entire society. It's almost instinctive for us to think that each person can and should define their own identity decide their own meaning and values, and even create their own reality. I wish I had more time to, to, to just talk about that more. I had a whole page that I had to cut. I had to cut out like, seriously like 20% of, of what I had because we could just talk about that so much, how it's just so instinctive for us to think in those really individualistic terms that we create our own life. Um, it, I think it's even seeped into the stories we tell. Um, although, like I said um, at the beginning, some of our works of literature and cinema might reflect uh, this parable uh, to a certain extent, how many, how many stories do you know that go something kind of like this, which is pretty much the opposite of, of this parable? Something like, um, a daughter grows up in an oppressive home. Uh, her father and mother want her to follow the family tradition, uh, go into a certain trade, start a certain kind of family, live out a certain kind of ethic, but she craves something else. And so she's always getting into trouble and embarrassing the family. Finally, she leaves home to discover herself and her life blossoms. 
Eventually, the parents see her flourishing, admit that they were wrong, and reconcile with her, accepting her new way of living. Or if she gets into trouble, uh, the parents come to bail her out, but somehow see uh, her falling into trouble as their fault for not accepting her and pushing her away in the first place. They apologize and accept her new way of living. How many stories do you know that follow that? It's a lot. Hollywood has made a lot of money off of that. Uh, You're free to do that too if you want to, I guess. Um, We need to point this out because it's actually natural for us to admire the younger son. He's just misunderstood. He's, he's finding his way, learning to express himself. He's leaving oppressive tradition for personal liberation. But Jesus shows the trajectory of prodigality. It doesn't lead to flourishing, but to poverty. It leads to, to bondage, to death. But what kind of poverty? Is it just no money? This is our second question. To what kind of poverty do his actions lead? Look at uh, verses 14 uh, through 16 here. Uh, It says, And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Um, The younger son thought that if he rebelled and took control of his life, it would lead to flourishing and freedom not what we see here. I actually think it's, it's poverty, it's, it's destitution in pretty much every way. It's physical destitution. He lacks basic necessities. Hunger pains rack his body. It is financial. He's spent it all. Whatever pleasure or security he could buy, he's lost it. Um, it's emotional. He's in an emotional poverty. He's distraught in, in despair. If you're longing to eat what the pigs are being fed with because you have so little I guarantee you're not in an emotionally healthy place. Uh, it's, it's relational impoverishment. Because the relationships he built were based on pleasure-seeking and finances, his so-called friends disappeared with his money. And since he cut ties with his family as in, and is in a faraway country, he has no communal support when his own decisions come crashing down on him and no support when his circumstances turn sour, right? A famine hits. Uh, moral destitution. Uh, Who knows what reckless living really entailed? Uh, His older brother thinks that that entailed hiring prostitutes. Maybe it did. We don't know. Um, Maybe he's had to steal to survive at this point. Um, Some scholars think that if he's staying alive and no one's giving him anything, he's probably stealing. Uh, And it's, it's, it's a religious poverty. He's done what many first century Jews would have thought unthinkable. He has made himself unclean by associating with a pagan and working with pigs, which was an unclean food for the Jews. He would not have been able to participate in the worshiping life of Israel. And all of this is his own fault. It's his own fault. And, and, And the original hearers would have thought, yeah, serves him right. He got what he deserves. And they're not necessarily wrong. This is what he deserves. It's his own actions that got him there. We see also here that he's, he's more than just poor, though. He is enslaved. What I think is, is really crucial to see about this son, this younger son, is that detachment from the father always means attachment to another lesser master. Detachment from the father always means attachment to another lesser master. Something has to fill that void. 
Um, in this case, it's a ruthless, uncaring pig farmer. Probably not that for you, but it is going to be something. You will uh, have to find a, a new master because when we desire self-sufficiency and control, we always find, one, uh, personal and social poverty. Right? We are not g- strong enough or good enough to see our liberation, our freedom through to the end. And so we have then the second thing, an enslavement to a new master in hopes of returning to some kind of freedom. That always happens. So think about our own context. Are we, as a society, as individuals, impoverished? Are we in bondage because we have been following that prodigal mentality? I'm just going to throw out some phrases and then you tell me. Uh, mental health crisis, rising suicide rates, crisis of masculinity, political polarization, workaholism, gender and sexuality confusion, loneliness, radical extremism, distrust in institutions, conspiracy theories, cancel culture. Does that sound like a healthy, flourishing society with healthy, flourishing individuals to you? It does not to me. Or does it sound like poverty, like enslavement to our desires? That's where the prodigal mentality gets us. And just like the prodigal son, we have no one to blame but ourselves. We've gotten what we deserve. But then something surprising happens in the parable. The love of the father, the scorned, the dishonored father, goes out to his son in his misery. How does that happen? This is our third question. How does the father's love go out to him? The younger son first remembers the father's past goodness. The father's kindness and gentleness come ripping through his memory like a cold splash of water jolting him awake. This is, in fact, what the text means when it says that the son came to himself. He's returning to a previous state of mind, a state in which he had experienced his father's goodness. He's awakening to the reality that his father's character is full of love, something that he, he knew, but he shunted into the depths of his mind. This love of the father from the past comes surging into the son's present, awakens him, and causes him to think differently. Wait, wait a minute, he says. My father's servants eat better than this. Uh, he gives them plenty. Maybe I should go back. Um, I'll say something like, like Dad, I, I, I really screwed up. I dishonored you. I dishonored God. I, I, I know now that you, you really had been loving me that whole time. I, I don't deserve even half of what you gave to me, but maybe I could at least work, work for you. Yeah, yeah, I'll say something like that. This is what he's now thinking because of the, the Father's past kindness and love surging into his present. Now, Jesus' Jesus's, uh, original hearers would be thinking, that's the best he can do? He'll have to do some more groveling than that. If, if he were my son, he tried to come home after, after the shame he brought to me in our household. He, he really deserves nothing but a beating. And this is what many scholars say would have been the appropriate response in that culture. Son come home, beating. You humiliated this family. I don't think so. But Jesus shocks them with the profuse love of the father. I love this part. As the prodigal approaches his childhood home, the father does five astonishing, uh, just incredible things. First, he sees his son coming a long way off. He's actually on the lookout for his son, who, for all intents and purposes, is dead. So maybe the father knows something about coming back to life that everyone else doesn't. 
Second, he feels compassion towards him. The father is not embittered. He's not resentful for the attack on his character and the blatant rebellion against his authority. More than that, his heart actually goes out to him in love and mercy. And so third, he physically runs out to him. Where's his sense of decorum? Where's his his dignity? Doesn't he know by rights the son should come to him? Fourth, he actually embraces the wretch. He picks him up, gives him a big old bear hug, even as filthy and unclean as he is. And and fifth, say it ain't so, he kisses him. What? Big sloppy white kiss right on on, on the cheek. This is is ridiculous. It's, It's incredulous. This is not what he should do. He shouldn't allow the son to experience this level of intimate affection, especially not without a good bit of groveling, some I'm so sorry's and woe is me's and wretched son that I am's. The son should have to beat himself up a little bit, shouldn't he? Right? If the father's not going to beat him up, at least the son should beat himself up, right? But that's not the heart of the father. The father sees his wretched state. He knows it. He doesn't, and he doesn't care. He doesn't care the indignity it will cost him to run out to him. He doesn't care about the cost to his estate. He doesn't care about any of that. The father knows one thing. My son was lost, but now he's found. He was dead, now he's alive. That's the heart of the father. It goes out in immediate, joyous embrace. And that's the heart of our God and Father. Um, One of the things I love about this painting is um, I looked up some, I I figured that there were a lot of famous paintings about this parable, um, and there are, and uh, several of them have this prodigal son on his knees before the father and the father is just like leaning over him and just kind of like, yes, I will embrace you. Just like, no, this is it. (laughs) Just pick him up and hug him because he loves him because that's the kind of father he is. And this has been actually how scripture has always depicted God. Uh, Back in, in, you can, I mean, you can go back to the whole Old Testament. We'll look at Jeremiah 31. Um, This uh, depicts really this whole prodigal son scene in a beautiful, uh, moving poem. Uh, in in uh, Jeremiah 31, God describes how he will go out to the far country to gather in Israel. Like a shepherd, he will lead them back to the promised land, full of grain and wine and oil. Like a father, he will love them with an everlasting love. He will turn their mourning into laughter, their tears into shouting and dancing and singing. He will even make a new covenant with them, reestablishing his loving relationship. And verse 20, I think, summarizes the heart of God uh, wonderfully. Let's, let's look at that together. He says, is Ephraim my dear son? This is another name for Israel. Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, right, speak against him because he's rebelled against me, as, but, but as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Right? Does he say, like, I guess I'll take him back? <laughs> no, he says, my heart yearns for him. I want him back. My mercy will go out and bring him back in. That is our God. So how does the younger son respond? This is our fourth question here. We've already seen that he engages in a new way of thinking, right, because of, of the father's past love. So he's, he's kind of started to turn back, but notice that his, his full conversion, you could say, comes after the display of the father's love here, after the father goes out and, 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 and embraces and kisses him. The father 
hadn't said anything, yet he technically hadn't confirmed that he would uh, receive his son back, and yet he had. And so he'd given him son, his son the confidence to complete his repentance. He returns to the father totally. He confesses his sin, and he doesn't make any excuses. He doesn't say, you pushed me away. No, he just says, I've sinned against you. He admits his unworthiness to be his son. This is all correct and good, but the father's love is even more lavish than we might initially see. Because look at verse 21. Uh, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. What's supposed to come next in the son's speech? Submission. Father, treat me as one of your hired servants. But the father anticipates where the speech is heading and cuts him off. No son of mine is going to have anything other than full sonship. So he restores to him the full rights of sonship. He gives him a robe so that everyone would know his position in the household, a ring to display his authority, shoes to indicate his high status. And you know what? Let's throw a party, grill up some steaks. For all my fellow meat-loving Texans, we know that the father really loved his son, right? And, and what's crazy too is the fattened calf, that is a lot of meat. Some of you are like, yeah, that sounds awesome. Um, this is a feast. It's a lavish celebration for the whole neighborhood. This would have fed way more than uh, just this household. This is a feast for the neighborhood. The prodigality of the son's lifestyle is weak compared to the prodigality of the father's love. It's weak compared to the prodigality of the father's love. So the younger son submits to the father, yes, but he submits to the father's confirmation of sonship, not to servitude or slavery. This is God's love for the sinner. This is, this is Romans 8, 15 through 17, if we can read that. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified. This is God's heart. It does not matter to what extent you've tried to live apart from God. It doesn't matter how far you've traveled away from God's home. It doesn't matter how rebellious you've been, how you've lived for yourself and purposely against God's will. It doesn't matter how impoverished you've become or how enslaved you've become. It does not matter if you are morally, emotionally, mentally, or spiritually dead. God's mercy reaches into the farthest corners of the earth, into the deepest caverns of our heart. His compassion seeks out the lost and welcomes them home with an outpouring of loving affection. I love the hymn that we sing sometimes. It says, praise the Lord. His mercy is more stronger than darkness, new every morning. Our sins, they are many, but what? His mercy is more. His mercy is more. His love is greater. If you will come to him in repentance and confession, you will find an affectionate father. This is the heart of God that so many of us have missed. We've thought because we've gone so far away, his love can't reach me out there. Did it get the prodigal son? Yeah. Will it come to you? Yes. Maybe you've realized that this is only half the parable. We haven't even really hit the main point. <clears throat> the last half of the parable, uh, some scholars would say if, it was, if this was a joke, the last half is actually the punchline. Right? We always focus on the prodigal son. Uh, but this really isn't the parable of the prodigal son. It's the parable of two lost sons. 
Go back to verse one for a moment, and let's look at who is Jesus' audience. Uh, verse one of chapter 15, says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. Okay, there's half the audience. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Rah, rah, rah. They're doing what Pharisees do. They just grumble. <clears throat> so sinners are listening. They're meant to hear this. But so are the grumbling Pharisees. The Pharisees who can't understand how Jesus could associate with such lowlifes, sinners, the tax collectors. Do sinners have a hard time understanding the heart of God? Most definitely. If, uh, if they didn't understand him, they would run to him without hesitation. Do the Pharisees, <clears throat> do religious people, have a hard time understanding the heart of God? Maybe even more. In chapter 15 here of Luke, Jesus actually um, tells a few parables. Uh, he tells the parable about a lost sheep. The shepherd leaves 99 uh, to go find the one and celebrate when it's found. In the same way, Jesus says, heaven rejoices when one sinner, one sinner repents, like I said earlier. A second parable uh, gets the same point across. A woman loses one of her 10 coins and searches and searches until it's found. And when she finds it, she rejoices with her neighbors. And in the same way, Jesus says again, uh, angels rejoice when one sinner repents. Then Jesus makes the illustration personal. If we rejoice when a lost sheep is found, and even when a lost coin turns up, how much more rejoicing should occur when a son repents and returns home? How does the older brother respond? With rejoicing? Jesus has been telling parables of lost things, someone seeking and finding, and the fittingness or necessity of celebrating when they're found. Heaven rejoices. But the older brother just can't. Despite the fact that he stayed uh, at home, despite the fact that he's always uh, uh, stayed hard at work for his, his father, uh, uh, he, Jesus is telling us, uh, is lost. He has totally misunderstood the heart of the father. And he also actually exercises independence and control in his own way. And he is impoverished and in bondage. So how, how does the older son exercise independence and control? Let's go back to our first question. Well, wait, wait, how, how can he desire, how can you say he desires independence from the father and to control his own life? I mean, right, he, he stayed home. He was doing what he was supposed to do. Proximity does not equal intimacy. Obedience does not equal love. Proximity does not equal intimacy and obedience does not necessarily equal love, equal love. After coming back from working in the field and discovering the house in joyous uproar over the return of his brother, listen to how the older brother responds. Uh, this is uh, verses 28 uh, through 30. But he was angry, and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Do you hear how he actually used proximity and obedience to his father in order to gain independence and control over him? You can hear it in his sense of entitlement. He assumed that because he never disobeyed the father, he had earned certain rights. 
the father should have thrown him a party. And isn't it ridiculous that his robe and rain, his robe and rain get tossed to this runaway? Because remember, actually, uh, the father had already given the, the younger son's portion of his inheritance to him, so whatever is left by rights should become the older brother's. So his good behavior, his faithfulness, he believes, gives him the right to control the father's assets now. So you see, in his heart, he too has traveled to a far country, away from home, away from the father's heart. He's actually, he's actually weaponized his goodness against the father in this moment of passion. He has now dishonored the father in his own way, and it leads him equally to poverty. Does it look like the poverty of the younger son? No. But it's a lot of the same things. So let's ask the question for him. To what kind of poverty do his actions lead? Well, first, he is emotionally impoverished. He's emotionally compromised. At the return of his brother, he's filled with anger, resentment, bitterness. And why? Because he's in bondage to his own moralism. One of the best ways to characterize the older son is moral rigidity. He has to be good, or else he won't be accepted by the Father. And if he's not accepted by the Father, how can he make any claims on the Father? How can he then control his own life? But then this leads him to make judgmental comparisons, because what is good enough? He can only imagine what is good enough for approval by comparing himself to others. Well, I know I'm good because I'm better than him. So the older brother then feels a sense of moral superiority, That's what causes him to look down on those who aren't as good as him and why he is outraged when they receive acceptance and love. Moral rigidity, judgmental comparison, moral superiority. And so he's relationally impoverished because he makes himself at odds with everyone because everyone is someone who could reveal his inadequacy. If they're better, am I good enough? Notice how he can't even call his brother my brother but refers to him as this son of yours. He's relationally destitute. The prodigal, didn't, uh, <coughs> the prodigal didn't realize he was unworthy until he came to the end of himself. The Pharisee, who is the older brother here, um, he lives with a constant state of unworthiness, but thinks he can become worthy through his goodness. And so he's fragile held up by the weak scaffolding of his morality, which is just ready to crumble. And he actually makes himself less than a son in the process. He rejects sonship and makes himself a servant. The older son says, look, these many years I have served you. I think some other English translations capture the sense a little bit better. They say, I have been slaving away for you. That verb, the noun form of it is slave. He's slaving away. He should be a son, made himself living like a slave. For all these reasons, the older son cannot experience the father's joy. He just can't enter into it. He's busied himself too much with goodness and obedience and living just right for that. In fact, I think we could actually say he's become miserly. (laughs) He's in some ways kind of financially destitute. Even though he's had access to all that is the father's, the father has to remind him in verse 31 that all he has is also the older brothers too. He's always had access to it, but he's deprived himself of it. So lastly, we can say the older son lives with a constant sense of underappreciation. 
He's the constant martyr. Woe is me. I'm doing everything I should, but everyone always forgets about me. He's in bondage to himself, and it has destroyed him. He, too, is lost. But see how his lostness is even more dangerous, even more scary, really, than the younger brother's lostness. Firstly, because goodness can mask lostness. This is why this is kind of scary. Goodness can mask lostness. Do you see that? He's doing everything right. Surely he's not lost. He's moral, he's faithful, he's responsible, he's a hard worker. Yeah, and he's lost. He's far from the heart of the Father, desiring to control his own life and hoping to win his own worthiness and approval by his good deeds. He's missed the Father's heart of mercy and grace. And secondly, he is maybe in a more dangerous position than his younger brother because what is going to wake him up? What's going to bring him to his senses? What will reveal his lostness to him? He's assured himself that he's good, that he's doing the right things, that he's obeying the Father's will. So if anyone tries to show him his fragility and, and brokenness, his judgmentalism and comparison, uh, what's he going to say? Well, I'm not lost. What are you talking about? I, I think my record speaks for itself. And then he probably adds in his mind, unlike my brother. Because nothing builds up the older son like a little put down. Right? That's actually what he's doing when he's saying, you know, yeah, my brother, he spent all his money on prostitutes. He's just putting him down because it lifts him up. But the younger son, in hoping in the father's mercy, just might actually understand the father's heart more than the older son. That's what's crazy in this story. That the prodigal son, in saying, maybe my father will take me back, actually understands the heart of the father more than the older brother. As I've been describing the, the older son here, uh, yeah, I've been describing the Pharisees in Jesus' audience. They were clearly the intended target. But I've also been describing some in this audience. On the surface, you're an excellent Christian. You give uh, regularly, you serve sacrificially, you attend Sunday gatherings and Bible studies faithfully, you, you even sing uh, exuberantly. You even sang out, out loud uh, this morning when we had kind of a, a stripped down set here. You're like, oh, I'll, I'll sing out, I'll be the one to sing out. You have all the outward marks down, but in actuality, you're relying on those works for acceptance into the kingdom of God. And so in your heart, you're beginning to take on the older son's traits, the judgmentalism, the looking down on others, the, the underlying feeling of unworthiness. And when circumstances go not quite the way you'd like, you'll be ready to shout to God, haven't I done what you asked? Haven't I been faithful? Where's my blessing? If they're gonna receive blessing, surely I should too. Jesus speaks about these folks in Matthew 7, 21 to 23 in uh, what I think is one of the more terrifying passages in, in scripture. And let's look at that. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Look at what they think gets them in. Prophesying, casting out demons, mighty works, all in Jesus' name. They're not even doing it for themselves or in their own strength, seemingly. But they've missed the essence of God's will. To drench the hurting in mercy. To lavish grace upon the undeserving 
to forgive and make peace with enemies. This leads us to our third question. How does the Father's love go out to him? Now, if I, if I place myself in this scenario again, let's say something like this has happened with my girls, but I've been the good father and I've welcomed the prodigal back. Um, and I'm overjoyed when she returns. If I then hear that another daughter is out pitching a fit, you know what I'm doing? Nothing. Let her throw her tantrum. That's on her. She wants to be out there and pout and be a little turd. She can get over it, all right? We got some parting to do, no buzzkills allowed. That's my response. Is that the father's response? No. Because the heart of God is just more compassionate than I want to allow. It's all too easy, all too easy for us to become like the older brother towards the older brother, to become pharisaical towards the Pharisees. Maybe we don't exactly sneer at someone who is obviously self-righteous, but we at least give them a, an, oh, bless their heart. Maybe one day they'll understand the gospel and start being so, so, stop, be, stop being so self-righteous. Just being the older brother. This is not the heart of God. How does the father respond? Again, he forgets his own dignity and goes out to the eldest son. Again, this is how we know the eldest son is lost, right? Fitting with the other parables, there's a going out and searching for. He's lost. And we read that he entreats his oldest son. That, 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 that means he encourages to come in. He urges him. He tenderly pleads with his son to join the celebration. Come on, son. Let's celebrate. And after the son finishes his complaint, the father says this in verses 31 to 32. He said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. What does the father say to his lost son? He reminds him of his sonship. You're always with me. You've always had the opportunity for fellowship and intimacy. You've never stopped having access to me, but you've made yourself a servant. Stop that. Stop your striving. Stop your struggling. Lay down whatever goodness you think you've built up and just be my son. You don't need to work for my love and grace. Just receive it and enjoy communion with me. That's how the father's love goes out to this older son. Doesn't reject him. Says, no, I'll go out to you too. So last question, how does the older son respond? What does the text say? It doesn't tell us. We don't know. The parable ends brilliantly on, on, a, on a cliffhanger. Is this the parable of the two lost but found sons? Or is it the parable of the found son and the lost son? You tell me how are you going to respond? Because that's what this parable is. It's putting that question on us. How are you going to respond? Running down the heart of each of us, there's something of the prodigal and something of the Pharisee. A tendency to assert our own will and control through active rebellion and through good works. But the heart of God the Father is so merciful and gracious and loving and kind and so is the heart of God the Son, Jesus Christ, who perfectly shares the heart of the Father, that along with God the Holy Spirit, they came up with a plan to save sinner and saint alike. Luke 19.10, the 
sums it up perfectly, I think. Jesus says, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Does it say the prodigal? Does it say the religious people? No, it just says the lost. All of us who are lost, Jesus comes and he says, I will save you. So that's you prodigal and that's also you Pharisee. The prodigal has underestimated the love of God because he has thought, I've gone too far. Surely the love of God can't reach me. The Pharisee has underestimated the love of God because he has said, if I, if I mess up, I'm going to lose I'm going to lose God's love. They both underestimated the, gods of, uh, the, 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 the love of God. And I think we do this all the time. I'm just convinced more and more that actually half of the Christian life is just recognizing that God loves you more than you think. Because all too often we, we, we either slip into going off and being the prodigal or we slip into being the Pharisee. The older brother, to, to think that, that no, okay, if I, if I want to keep this, i gotta, I got to work really hard. And Jesus is saying, no, you don't. I've done that for you. See, Jesus is actually the better older brother who gave up his privileged position to seek you out. He found you in all your poverty and brokenness and bondage and sin and death, and he said, put that on me. I We'll take it to the cross. Take my inheritance. Go be a son and daughter of the Father. Share in his full, eternal, joyous life. That's what Jesus does for us. That's the heart of God. So how do we respond? Confess your sins. Repent and turn to him. And then enter into the feast. The joy that God has prepared for you. That's the response. Isn't that awesome that, that that gets to be the response? Hey, go party with God. That's great. I love that. It's fitting now that we uh, turn to take communion. So if our hosts would, uh, would, would prepare for that. Um, the elements that we actually take are kind of small, right? Um, but the, these, these do something really important for us spiritually. They point us back. Firstly, to, to the sacrifice that Jesus uh, gave for us. He gave us his own body, his own blood. And also reminds us of the feast to come. When Jesus returns and he brings all those who were lost, but he has found, he takes them together and we get to just feast and celebrate and enjoy God. So as, as you're coming and, and as you're receiving the elements, just reflect on that. Reflect on the fact that, yes, God really does love you that much. He really does love you that much. So the ushers are gonna uh, dismiss you, come down, take the elements, go back to your seat, uh, and then we'll all uh, uh, take those together. Let me pray for us. Father, your love is so much greater than we know. So much so that actually in Ephesians 3, Paul has to pray that we would have the strength to comprehend how, how wide and deep and immeasurable your love is. We don't even have the strength to receive how loving you are. It is in our sinful nature to try to be in control of our lives, to think that we know more than you. 
that we can be our own master, but every time we become enslaved to something else. So strengthen us to receive your love. Help us to understand that you love us with an unquenchable love and empower us to, to come to you because we just won't on our own. We need those reminders of your love again to draw us forward so that we would repent and confess our sins. So help us to do that this morning. In Jesus' name.